Hello everyone and welcome back to part two of our episode on Don't Call Them Hairbands. So part one was my turn where I got to give my top ten list and now I will turn things over to Professor Sean to go over his top list of his favorite heavy metal bands of all time. You know, a lot of these bands tend to fall in the decade of the 1980s, which was kind of the heyday for uh, heavy metal, and particularly for the, the bands that we we're talking about in this episode. And it just kind of turned out that way. We didn't really plan on it, but the decade certainly was a high point for this, this style of music. Many of us can agree that, like some of the styles in the past, and we mentioned disco in this episode, and how disco kind of uh, developed a bad name over some time. But I think it's kind of being brought back, and, and people are truly appreciating it for what it is, and that was just well done, good music at for its time. And I think the same thing will apply to heavy metal music as uh, history will judge it, and I think we'll judge it fairly. So without further ado, uh, Sean's up now with part two of Don't Call Them Hair Bands, on the Gen X Playback Show. Thanks. Okay, so for my top 12 that I have, Scott, I um, I start out with a band that is, you know, a well-known band, probably not necessarily as well-known for the genre. Uh, you know, a band that goes all the way back to the 70s, and I'm talking about Kiss. And so Kiss was a band that I've never been a huge fan of with their 70s work, which I know is counter to what most people think, but they had a nice little run in the 80s where they were kind of a a, a glam metal band. Yes. Yeah, you they know, dropped the makeup. They dropped the makeup. It started with Lick It Up. I right. mean, Lick It Up, uh, that original album with the song Lick It Up, kind of introduced them to a, a younger audience. That's what they were going for. Quite frankly, the audience they were going for was my age group. Okay. You know, I would think, you know, this came out, you know, that was like 1983-ish, and, and at that time, I'm junior high school, and so, you know, that's, you know, ready to get into high school, so you're kind of, they're trying to capture the teenagers again. Right, they were trying to, they were trying to move on, Paul Stanley and um, Gene, Simmons. Gene Simmons, they really struggled moving past the Ace Freely, Peter Chris Kiss band, and the, the the fans Kiss fans are some of the most loyal in the world, and they were very loyal to that four four man team. So when Peter Chris leaves and then Ace Freely leaves, they had to they really had to reinvent themselves in some way, and they weren't going to do it with the makeup. I think at that point, the uh, a lot of the Kiss Army, as they called them, was uh, you know they were kind of like done with it, and this was this allowed them to reinvent themselves which credit them for doing it not many bands can pull it off successfully and they had a, they had a lot of survival in in the 80s a lot of endurance with with more albums and successful albums too. sure i mean but they came out with some some hits that i liked um you know heavens on fire mm -hmm. was a song that i liked uh tears are falling was something i like but here was a song that came out in 1989 it was off their hot in the shade album called hide your heart 
Okay. And, and I don't know if you remember it that well. It, I do. It, it was a song that was, if you listen to it, you can kind of hear the, the professional writers on board with this. So this was written by Paul Stanley, leads, you know, lead guitarist, uh, lead rhythm guitarist and lead singer of KISS, along with Gene Simmons. Desmond Child, who has previously worked with KISS. Yeah, this, I think, when, when I knew that Desmond Child was a part of the song, now I, now I can hear it. You can totally hear it. But in addition to Desmond Child, a songwriter who I really like, and most people don't know her name, but Holly Knight. So Holly Knight is she writes the Warrior for Scandal. Mm. She her biggest song by far is simply the best by Tina Turner. She is, you know, all over the map. She writes for Heart mm. during this time. You can kind of hear that kind of sound that Holly had going on. Well, Holly uh, just recently came out with a memoir. Yes, and uh, from what I'm told, it's it's really good. It's a good read if if anybody's interested. And sort of that behind-the-scenes 80s rock era, which certainly falls into our wheelhouse. So I, I'm probably going to end up buying it at some point. Right. So this was Kiss as, I think, you know, the purists don't care for Kiss during this period. But it was the players where you talked about Ace and, and uh, uh, you know, Peter Chris. Mm-hmm. They were out of the band at this point. So at guitar, you had Bruce Kulick. Mm-hmm. who I, I think, you know, was was really good. I respect Bruce Kulick's work quite a bit. And it's the last album that we hear from Eric Carr. And Eric Carr I liked. I remember Eric Carr uh, throughout the 80s with, with uh, you know, Kiss. And, and uh, he stood out to me because I thought he was a really uh, superior drummer. Yeah. I, I thought he was very good. He was. Now, he, he unfortunately, he got cancer and, you know, he passes away after this. But, you know, Hot in the Shade kind of closes out the 80s for them. And it is, they're soon going to go back to the makeup again. You know, they're, they're in the 90s. They're going to do a, a reunion with the original members. But at least for a little while, they, they, they're they still part of that Sunset Strip sound. And, you know, with this album, Hot in the Shade, had their, one of their bigger hits of that era was Forever. Yeah. Co-written with Michael Bolton. Right. So they're reaching out, especially Paul Stanley. You know, Gene Simmons during the 80s wasn't sure if he was an actor or whether he was a musician. He, he admittedly talked about how his interest in Kiss was starting to wane. And it was Paul Stanley that really was the driving force to keeping the group together. Right. I, I like a lot of the, the music that came out of this period. Because, you know, kind of, you had talked about the fact that you wanted bands that kind of had more than just one album, right. more than one hit. And, you know, Kiss was still an arena act. Mm-hmm. Now, were they as big as they were before or would become later absolutely not but they still were putting out you know albums every two years they're still in the still touring you know i think it's you you hear mixed stories about how successful some of these tours were back in the 80s but i still think that there was some good music and that song in particular i you know that was a song that a couple other artists recorded bonnie tyler was someone else who recorded that song okay never became a hit kind of not sure why, just because, you know, it's very professionally run or written. Okay. Okay, so Kiss is number 12 on my list. Go to number 11. So this is a very young, upcoming band when this comes out and hugely successful.
and this is Warren, mm-hmm. where sometimes she cries. You know, Warren drew a lot of consideration for my list. And when I go back and listen to, especially their music from Dirty Rotten Filthy Stinking Rich, mm-hmm. and how good these guys were. Which, is, this song is off their first album. Yep. Produced, another album produced by Bo Hill. Right. And Janie Lane, uh, you know, unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. One of the great singers of his era, you know, I'm talking the late 80s, early 90s, certainly on the same, in the same conversation as maybe a Sebastian Bach or, you know, from Skid Row or, you know, among the best vocalists of his, of his genre. And he was a singer-songwriter. You know, he, he wrote everything for Warren. I don't think any of the guys in the band contributed to the songwriting, if you go back and look at the albums, it's you know, words and lyrics, right? Uh, or I'm sorry, music and lyrics by Janie Lane, and he he was very proficient. He he was a good guitar player. He um, also was, uh, as you said, you know, he was a good lead singer. He he kind of fit the mold that they were putting out. When you think of that time and that period, you're thinking kind of the the blonde pretty boy, right? Who I think I did yell at him at the concert about. Of being well, a pretty boy. That was after he mooned us. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I was like, you know, I, I told him to shut up and just sing, you pretty boy. That's and right. It's, uh, but still, even even though that happened, I remember it being a really good concert. You I know, was, we said that they opened for Poison. I was pleasantly surprised as to how good Warrant was. I mean, we, we had the expectation going in for Poison. Yeah. But Warrant was a pleasant surprise as to how, what a good show that they, and they played the song at the concert. And it was, uh, you know, very well received, very well played. Um, we saw them pretty early in the tour, so they were bringing their A game, and it right. was it was it was a good show. They were now, of course, later on they're going to come out with the Cherry Pie album, and you know I could have played Cherry Pie. I debated it. It it, uh, I mean, that's probably the most famous video that they had. You know, mm-hmm. Bobby Brown who eventually marries Jenny Lane. They, they meet on the set. Bobby Brown, the model, not, yeah. the, not the singer, former of New Edition. Correct. Correct. Uh, the uh, Bobby Brown, the model, was in a lot of videos mm-hmm. back then. She was, she, you know, kind of a, a video vixen, as yep. they were known back in the day. And uh, very memorable. It's, it, it's a song that, you know, still appears in pop culture. The, uh, was it, Grown Ups or Grown Ups 2? Where, where I think it appears at a car wash scene. Yes. And so it's, it's I remember your son, He's a, he, he was singing that song based on seeing it huh. in, in Grown Ups too. Well, um, it, I saw an interview with Janie Lane that he gave before he passed away, and he kind of laments the whole Cherry Pie song because it was thrown together so last minute that the, the, the album was originally supposed to be called Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. And so they like, well, we need one more song. Can you, can you try and come up with something that's catchy? So he said in like an afternoon, he writes Cherry Pie. And the studio loved it. Like, oh, this is the best song now. We're going to call the album Cherry Pie. And it, it took their band to another level in terms of popularity. But it also took something away and kind of made them more gimmicky than, than it did. Showed off how good the band was particularly coming off such a successful debut album 
It was the and they were they were very much known on the scene. They were they came up at the same time as Poison. It's just you know we talked about Quiet Riot kind of hitting it before a lot of the other bands. And but they were contemporaries. Mm-hmm. You know, Warrant was with kind of that next wave. You know, we you know the you know the Quiet Riots were coming around in the early '80s, where kind of mid '80s. Now you're getting the next wave of artists coming in. Where you know, as you said, like Rat was on the, in the early wave and Quiet Riot. They, but here, you know, Warrant and definitely was was a band that was super popular. And not, and they didn't just have the one album, the one song. I didn't even play their probably their biggest hit, which was Heaven, mm-hmm. just because I didn't want to get too much into the ballads. Right. I think I'd like to do a separate show at some point where we talk about power ballads because they were such an important part of Gen X mm-hmm. of that era. You know, even going back to I think we talked about like Aria Speedwagon, and perhaps coming out with the original ballad. So ballads were very big, and as an artist during that time, you generally would come out with your rocker first. The Down Boys. The, the Down Boys was the first one. Then they came out with Heaven. Right. And then they came out with this song. Right. Which then they they followed it up with Big Talk, as well. You know, no, you know another hit. This was this was a very popular song. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was kind of in between. It wasn't quite a ballad. It wasn't a straight-ahead rocker. It's, I think, the lyrics are what make it more of a ballad. Well, if you listen to this, if you you know look at the words to Heaven, um, it's it's a pretty fairly deep song. Um, when he when he starts when he starts in the first verse, you know, he's talking about you know picture in the in of the house and. Yeah, he, he's kind of painting this vivid picture for the uh, you know for whoever's listening to the 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 song, and kind of stood out to me because it wasn't it wasn't your typical you know, hey baby, you know love or or which what heavy metal had sort of evolved into at that point. He was writing about different material, which I have to give him credit for. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Warrant is number eleven. Then we're gonna move on to number ten. So at number 10, another band that was a little bit older, they probably came up in the, the late 70s, early 80s on the strip, but they, they hit it really big in about 1985 with this album. And this is Dokken off the album Under Lock and Key, and this is The Hunter. And what stands out to me right now is one of the first guitarists that I remember by his name. And that would be? George Lynch. George Lynch, one of the great guitarists to come out of the scene. And, uh, yeah, he was he was one of those early, early guitarists on MTV that kind of stood out from some of the others. I mean, we knew, you knew Eddie Van Halen. You knew, yep. you knew, you knew the big names. and. George Lynch was in that conversation of the, of the big names of guitarists at the time. George Lynch was, like I said, he's a little bit older. He was probably about the same age as Eddie Van Halen. So coming up in the scene in the late 70s, George Lynch and, and Eddie Van Halen, and then Carlos Cavazzo and Randy Rhodes, who both end up playing in Quiet Riot. And right. you know, Randy Rhodes, he got the gig as Ozzy's guitar player. When Randy passes away, George Lynch was set to become his next guitar player. Right. Now, for George, one of the, the issues with George, while he is a phenomenal guitar player, by most accounts, he's a strange guy. 
He's he's a little bit different. He's got a weird. I wouldn't say weird. He's just he's got a different sense of humor. Okay. And and as a result, he's not everybody's cup of tea. I I, I find him funny because I've seen interviews, but he's always kind of has this dry wit going on. And so you have George Lynch, and you have the the lead singer of Dawkins, Don Dawkins. Mm-hmm. And evidently, Don and George they clash. Their personalities will clash. Where it's they say that even today they can do stuff together. They they're cordial. Right. They can be professional. They don't. It's not that they hate each other. It's just that when you spend a lot of time on a tour bus with somebody, it well, can get old. And they were known as two individually good guys that just didn't get along with each other. It was just a matter of personality. Because Don Dockin was extremely popular. Yeah. And George was extremely popular. Yeah. But they just didn't get along with each other. Exactly right. It. They, and but. And they're both very talented at what they have done. Don Dawkin, um, you know, you had talked about the Scorpions and their Blackout album. Well, during the, the when they're making the Blackout album, uh, Klaus Mine, his voice goes out. Yeah. And so Don steps in and he has to do all the demo work for them. Now, none of his lead vocals ever make it on to the Blackout album. However, he is credited with some backup vocals. So he was very connected in Germany prior to the release of Dokken. And he, um, so he, he had, you know, had a lot of credibility, right? So George Lynch is just known as one of the best players in Los Angeles at the time. So you have a lot of egos involved here. Right. And then you throw in uh, Mick Brown, who is a really good drummer. And typically what you'll have is, Sometimes you'll have the band members that clash a little bit, and then you'll have those guys that are kind of peacemakers in between. Interestingly, because Mick Brown, throughout the years, has spent time playing with Don in, in Dokken, and he's also spent a fair amount of time playing with George in Lynch Mob. Right. And he goes back and forth, and it's, it's no problem, which kind of shows your point, Scott, that it's not that they didn't like each other, because oftentimes if that, that's the case, they don't want you, you know, interacting with the other person right they have no problem with him with mick going back and forth right now mick has since retired just because when you're a a drummer it takes the toll on the body and then you start hitting your 60s i think it gets kind of tough yeah i mean any any uh, drummer that has played you know thousands and thousands of shows over the years over the decades it takes its toll particularly with arthritis and you know it's it's the most physically demanding instrument on the stage right and, and that's why a lot of those guys you know end up retiring and they that's why bands have to bring in these younger drummers to continue to tour you see it happen all over the place with with most bands that you know play into their fourth and fifth decades as a, as a group and and mick brown also had a long career touring with ted nugent after he was in dock and so you know this is a very respected uh drummer and then the kind of the cherry on the top is jeff pilson the bass player who to this day is the band leader in Foreigner. He is he's been in Foreigner for close to twenty years now. Yeah. And he, you know, highly respected as a producer, uh, and and also as a musician, just an incredibly tight band. One of those bands where it's often like we talked about kicks, like why weren't they bigger? I mean Dokken was big, but they never really headlined. True. Yeah. Uh, they hit their peak I think, unfortunately for Dokken, they hit their peak too early. Similar to Quiet Riot, they were they were one of the earlier. So you're, they were, I would guess, A Nightmare on Elm Street when they did the Dream Warriors song sure. for the soundtrack. Yeah. You're talking, what, 84? 
No, no, no. That was later. It was later. Yeah, that was later. That was okay. afterwards. Yeah. Okay. So they, you know, Tooth and Nail mm-hmm. was before this album. Then Back for the Attack came out after Under Lock and Key. You know, um, Back for the Attack had Dream Warrior on okay. it. All right. Unfortunately, they were one of those well-respected bands that didn't, you know, didn't get that get that to next level. So, and then they were also uh, in the summer of '88, I believe it was. They were on probably the major tour of the year, which was Monsters of Rock, right? Which was Van Halen, um, a young Metallica, kind of getting, you know, they, it was when they first were breaking through. Right. Scorpions were on that tour. And Dokken has often talked about, you know, they had the same management as a lot of these other bands. And you have a band that at the time on that tour, Metallica, who went on before Dokken. So Dokken was the more popular of the two bands. Dokken, for personality issues, uh, couldn't keep it together. They were, they were getting pretty popular at this point. And then they kind of broke up. Mm-hmm. And then they moved in. I think, you know, while they're number 10 on my list, I think you give them another album. And what was happening happening in the cycle? I think Doc and could have been really big. And also, if you listen to, I think it was maybe George Lynch had said that part of the problem was they didn't want to listen to their management. And the management, and I think they were Metallica's management as well, kind of wanted them to move a little bit away from the hairspray okay. spandex look. And they kind of liked that, and they wanted to stay with it, where... As it turned out in the 90s, it probably would have been a good move for them to kind of become more of a stripped-down band, and they probably would have survived. Sure, and, and bands like Motley Crue and Poison, they had already they had already done that. Right. Motley Crue did that with the Girls, Girls, Girls album, and Poison did that with the Open Up and Say Ah album, where they basically dropped the makeup. Right. So that's number 10 on my list. Okay, and that takes us to number nine on my list. Uh, just like Scott had this band on his list. I want to let that all right get out there. This is, of course, Cinderella. That's Tom Kiefer, lead singer of Cinderella, chiming in there. This is, of course... The first single that they released off of Night Songs, and that would be Shake Me. Shake Me, yep. This was the song that put them on the map. And you can you can hear they definitely were a heavy metal band. No doubt. Oh, yeah. Especially on this album. Oh yeah. Um But they still had they had a groove and a swing to them that was different than a lot of the you you can kinda feel that blues influence. With the way that the song's kind of moving along. Well, with the original, on the album cover, Tonight's Songs, they're very glammed out. You know, there's a lot of spandex, there's a lot of hair. Uh, they, you know, they have some fancy boots on. But it doesn't really say who they are sound-wise. I mean, they, the sound of this album is a lot heavier than what they're presenting. Right. Because in 1986, when this album comes out, that's what was popular. Right. You know, it's in a way Tom Kiefer was had a little bit of a Steven Tyler type of look going on, you know, with you know with all the bandanas and a lot of the flair. But as as a band themselves, as you could hear with that song, it's it's definitely has, has a much harder sound to it. And at that time, in, in 1986, when this came out, it was just prime. It was like the right moment. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we'll we'll talk about how, you know, the bands, it just wasn't the right moment for them. 
it couldn't have happened at a better time for Cinderella in 1986. And they, they used good marketing, you know, the ability with MTV, they came up with a catchy video for the song. It has, it was, um, you know, a nod to the Cinderella fairy tale. Right. Where you have the, the stepsister, you know, the two steps, stepsisters and Cinderella, the character, and she ends up, you know, getting to the concert. Um, and like you said, I mean, the sound was the right moment for that particular time. Heavy metal was probably in its prime when you're talking about that 86 to 88 range. And they did end up changing their sound a little bit with the next album. It still had a lot of rock songs on it, but you could see that Kiefer was trying to get away from like that hard, hard sound and go more, more into like a blues type uh, format. But Night Songs for me was was really one of the best. It of was, the and and the the band was really good too. You know, it's eventually you know some of the guys that aren't on the album. You, you, most people that only know Cinderella from, you know, who was playing on, on the album, don't, they don't realize that two of the members uh, split off and formed Britney Fox right. later on. Right. I mean, they they were, uh, Michael Kelly Smith, you know, the guitar player was, was probably the, the main guy. Uh, Tony Destra, I, he, I, he passed away before the, the Britney Fox album actually came out. But that, you know, there are videos out there where there's kind of like a, almost like a demo of Shake Me out there with the original band members and which is a little bit different but yeah. it's still pretty good and then this is the that was the band that john bon jovi saw play and then he kind of helped them get the deal later on and they would um uh, michael kelly smith gets replaced by jeff labar and he comes in and of course jeff labar just passed away a few years ago yeah uh, eric brittingham was the um was the bass player the thing i remember about eric was his hair yeah he had this poofy he, he, uh, he had the he like had a the blonde tree. yeah it looked like a tree yeah yeah, he had blonde hair. Very stylish. And the way that he had it styled, it was this big, giant, looked like one of those cush balls that uh, settled on top of his head, and it just looked like a big, giant tree covering his, uh, kind of like Cousin It from behind. Well, one of my favorite things about their stage show was the fact that Eric Brittingham on bass and Jeff Labar on guitar would do this twirl around their necks with the with their guitars. So they, they, they obviously weren't, uh, they they had like a, where they could walk around where they're not plugged in with a with a cord right. to the amplifier, and so they would spin spin it around. Now Eric Burningham is uh, Brett Michaels' bass player in his solo band, and you go onto YouTube, he still does that move. Okay, so it, it's it's still pretty. I, I like it. And Beavis and Butthead, they they did like the Shake Me video, and they commented <laughs> on that, and it was like, oh yeah, how we practiced that in the garage and. Well, I thought maybe you were going to mention that when you saw them in concert with Bon Jovi, how uh, when they're doing, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the uh, on the slow song, the second single that was released. Um, not your fool? Or nobody's not, full? Yeah, nobody's, nobody's full, full. Where the guitar solo comes in and you got a guy backstage oh, yeah. that they have it timed out. So I think it was Tom Kiefer. Tom Kiefer, yeah. Throws his guitar at the stagehand and he's throwing a different guitar at Tom Kiefer, and he catches it just before the start well, solo. I, yeah, so Kiefer, you know, he's he's the lead singer, and he does most of the solos, you know, for the hits. You know, so he's not playing a lot of the rhythm in the middle. Jeff Labar is, so Tom oftentimes is just up at the microphone singing, and then he they these guys had their act down together, where you know 
he, that sometimes it looked like the guitar, like his Les Paul, might be flying through the air before Tom even turns his head over. But it was, it was cool. And the, one of the things I liked about seeing them in concert was because when we saw them, it was because it was so popular, they had to take the curtain down backstage. So my original seats before we moved for when Bon Jovi came out was we were right behind the stage and we could see the stagehand creep up with the guitar and get ready and hoist it. I, I, this guy, it was amazing how their timing was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just, you know, when you talk about uh, musical acts even of today, it just goes to show a band that obviously put some thought and effort into their stage presence. You know, we, we mentioned earlier about kicks and, and how they had their moves fans look forward to stuff like that and and that's something that you'll that you remember to this day yeah absolutely so that was a really good show so at number seven or sorry number nine band out of philadelphia cinderella okay and then so number eight um a band on my list scott talked about did not make his list uh it was among his honorable mentions but for me it was white snake And with White Snake, of course, the classic song is Here I Go Again. Now, the version you're hearing right now is not the version from the video. Correct. This is the radio edit. Yes. A little poppier, a little more upbeat. This is the one that actually I think is the number one. Yeah, it did. It was a number one song. But it was this version, not the... Not the slower version from the video with Tony Katane. But I like that version. And that's the one usually you hear today. I prefer this one. Because I, I think it's... I, I, I heard it on the radio so much. Right. I, I just like this one. Yeah. I I mean, I, I really like this album. And their impact on MTV and... You know what I listened to at that time when they released these singles. You know, it was still the night. It was here I go again. Is this love? These are great songs. I mean, they really are. And uh, Coverdale doesn't get enough credit for the great vocalist that he really is because he does have one of those all-time, just those one of those great distinctive voices. Well, you know, the fact that when he takes a little break from White Snake in the 90s he works with Jimmy Page you know Coverdale Page and they come up with that project Jimmy Page is not going to work with a hack right so he was at the time in the 90s at really tuned in really dialed in with his voice it's a you know it's a very it's a very deep very masculine voice he can hit the high notes but he's not going for the the shrill high notes I remember uh, watching the VH1 behind the music with uh, Def Leppard, Joe Elliott uh, gushed over admiring uh, David Coverdale. I guess Coverdale and Def Leppard were in the studio around the same time, and uh, Joe Elliott was sitting there listening to Coverdale just rip through song after song after song, and he, he's like, he, he it's so easy for him. And, and Joe was like, it's so hard for me, and it's so easy. He makes it look effortless. He just had one. He just had a great, great singing voice. And on the, uh, I always like to read the liner notes. I, I like to know who writes the songs. I always like to know who the producers were. Uh, you know who played on the albums. 
And I remember, and, and you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, and I'm trying, I'm purely going by memory. It's that on the slotted or not slip of the tongue album, which was the follow up to this album, mm-hmm. that just entitled White Snake. It listed, you know, uh, Steve I guitar, you know, and then it, it would say, you know, and then it said uh, David Coverdale, uh, Marble Light. <laughs> so that's that was his instrument. He's, he's smoking cigarettes. That, uh, that that's yes. yes the the David that, that's that was David Coverdale. Interestingly, with that version that we just heard, uh, uh, here I go again. It's not John Sykes playing right. on that. It's it's Dan Huff. So Dan Huff is was was back in the eighties one of the top session guitarists. If it wasn't Steve Lukather, it was oftentimes Dan Huff playing on an album. He has since gone on to become one of the biggest producers. He does a lot of work in Nashville right now. That's okay. where he's based out of. He, but he not only does he do Nashville, uh, and he is um, Keith Urban's producer. Now he's been, I think, Keith Urban's producer for a long time. But he also works with bands like Megadeth. Okay. And he also fronted his own band called Giant back in the late 80s, if you sure, remember Sure, I remember Giant. Giant. Yeah. They, you know, so extremely talented, And but that's Dan Huff, and they went back and they re-recorded everything from that, you know, that we talked about how the band, you know, had the falling out, and like nobody that was on the album actually toured with him. We're here once again, David went out and he got all new musicians to re-record what became the radio edit for Here I Go Again. Sure, okay. All right, so that is number eight, and that's White Snake. So that's going to take us to number seven. Okay. And at number seven, once again, Scott and I are very similar in the bands that we pick. And number seven, once again, we're going to go back to Rat. Same album that Scott chose his song from, and this is going to be Invasion of Your Privacy, 1985. As I mentioned before, it's a Bow Hill-produced album, but... To me, I I struggle to find anything better, top to bottom, that summed up that kind of mid-80s metal sound. Yep. Great video, went along with it as well. And this is where I, I think, and then we talked, I talked about it when it was my turn. You talked about um, Marshall Burl. Yeah. Good management really went a long way for some of these bands in, in terms of longevity throughout the decade you know if you had if you had solid management backing you chances are excuse me you're able to get more airplay more promotion better tours you were able to get the better gigs and you know rat through the through the association with good management they were one of the best and most stable heavy metal bands of that decade. Very talented. You know, Stephen Piercy, lead singer in, in many ways. Rat was his baby. You know, he kind of formed it. it. It came out of a band out of San Diego called Mickey Rat. He's He is, you know, the kind of good-looking front man that you, look at, that, that you want at that time. His voice is not necessarily what you say is a great singing voice, but it kind of fit the music. Sure. You know, I, yeah. I saw them in concert, and I saw them during the Reach for the Sky tour back in 1989. He, he sounded better on the albums than, than he did live, but he, he still sounded good. He still fit in with what the band sounded like. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it was thought they were good. 
what they really had was one of the greatest guitar players of that whole era, and that was Warren D. Martini. Yeah, and Piercy as a singer, I would I would probably classify him as provocative. I wouldn't necessarily say that he he's not going to make anybody's top ten vocalist list. No, no, but he had a stage presence about him. He was he was a, what he lacked in vocal ability. He made up for in like you said the stage presence and being that front man that that good bands need. Sure. So you had Piercy, you had Warren D. Martin, who we're listening to right now, Robin Crosby, who was the other guitar player, who was known as uh, as, as the King, and in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I've heard uh, an interview with Bo Hill where he said that, you know, Robin was the leader of the band in a lot of ways. So when he had any issues that he needed to discuss anything, it was always through Robin. So you had Robin Crosby, who unfortunately passed away a number of years ago. Uh, a sad story of, of drug abuse, and, and uh, you know he ended up becoming a heroin addict and um, got AIDS, you know, through sharing needles. Uh, a lot, you know, and I think that was um, maybe late '90s, early 2000s, something like that. Yeah. Uh, Juan Crochet. Uh, you know, a really good bass player. Juan is the backup singer that you, you know, when you hear the backing vocals, it's Juan that you hear. And then Bobby Blosser, who was a, a highly regarded drummer from that era. So just just a, a, an excellent band. You know, unfortunately, as we had talked about, personality issues kept them from being bigger. They were big. And I, I think that if you would go back in time, you know, as we say all the time, it, you know, you would realize how much how bigger they were than even Motley Crue at the time. Sure, yeah. I mean, they were, like I said, they were the one of the poster boys for heavy metal music at at, at their time. And they probably probably were my favorite band, you know, of that era. And Invasion of Your Privacy was my favorite album. So if you have not heard it, kids, go out and listen to it <laughs> from start to finish. Not a bad song on there. Uh, excellent. You know, unfortunately, they only come in at number seven, and that's going to lead us to number six. We have the Scorpions. They're probably their biggest hit, and they'll be rocky like a hurricane. They went from being a very popular hard rock band, a lot of, you know, an arena act for sure, but when they came out with Love at First Thing and Rocky like the Hurricane, like a hurricane becoming the first release, they just blew up, and they, they became one of the absolute biggest hard rock bands at that time in America. Yeah, in in the world, really, because the, like I, like I had said before, they had come over from West Germany, and they they had a a solid presence in America. This and MTV, and the fact that MTV embraced was embracing harder rock really brought these guys up and credit them again for using the music video and that's why the blackout album and no one like you kind of created that anticipation for what are they going to come up with next so after after seeing that video on mtv when they world premiered this because this was one of those mtv world premiere videos that they showed it's like yeah i'm ready let's go Let's watch it. So we have we have Klaus Meine, their lead singer. The in a lot of ways the kind of the behind the scenes mastermind is uh, Rudolf Schenker, 
on rhythm guitar. Matthias Jobs on lead guitar. Now, the Scorpions had a number of other guitar players. Going back prior to Matthias, uh, Michael Shanker, Rudolph's brother, who is a highly regarded guitar player, uh, he was in the band. And, you know, prior to Matthias taking over, uh, a man by the name of uh, Uli John Roth. Okay. A totally different band under uh, Uli John Roth. You know, very much more of a uh, an early mid seventies kind of I don't want to say psychedelic type band, but it's it's not the what we would have. It's now going to be called by many as hair metal. Well, you had talked about Don Dokken and his work with the Scorpions. The reason that he worked with was because Klaus Meine got uh, a vocal injury. Mm-hmm. The Scorpions contemplated for a brief moment about offering the position to Don Dokken to be the lead singer for the Scorpions. And it was Don Dokken that actually recommended and suggested and said, Hey, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life. If you, if you don't wait, wait for this guy to heal up. And they, you know, to a man in the band, they were very grateful that, that, uh, Dokken was gracious enough to step away from what could have been a big opportunity for him. Sure. And then to kind of round up the the classic Scorpions lineup, you know, you have uh, Francis Bujos on a bass. And, you know, one of the best names uh, in the business out there on drums is Herman the German Rarebell. And I worked with uh, somebody whose name was also Herman, and we called him Herman the German because <laughs> so, he was from Germany. Well, yeah. there you go. So, you know, the, the Scorpions a lot of um, credibility in the uh, in this hard rock world a band that that had been around for quite some time you know sure. they had a whole career in the 70s before i was aware of them okay. i really did not know about them before the blackout album uh, you know as you mentioned you go from this to worldwide live another really big album that, that i really liked and then i as i had said i saw them on the uh, the savage amusement tour this is all before they become really big in the 90s with the uh, winds of change song sure and i and i think sean and i have been very upfront with our um you know interest in popular radio music mtv there wasn't a whole lot of underground like i, I probably the most underground thing that i would have listened to in in my younger days that was kind of before it blew up mainstream would have been rap music maybe in the early to mid 80s so there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that we were privy to before it broke big usually by the time it broke nationally at least for myself that was when uh, with the exception of maybe a band like Kicks, because they were a local band, and right. you got me into them in the beginning years before. But other than that, when it hit mainstream was pretty much when somebody like myself was catching it for the first time. Right, right, and that's you know we've talked about some other bands like in Philadelphia, like like the Hooters, and uh, you know similar thing. We knew about them before they hit national. Oh, guys, will you stop talking <laughs> about the Hooters? Come on and. Tommy Conwell as well. Let's write him in here. Well, we didn't talk uh, about uh, Tommy have, to the conversation. Tommy, if you're listening, and he could be one of our Philadelphia listeners. That would be awesome. Uh, Tommy, if you ever want to come on the program, we would love to have you. <laughs> Anytime you may come on the program. But this is not a show about Tommy Conwell tonight. We're talking about hard rock and heavy metal music. All right. So that we're you know closing out with the Scorpions, as, as I talked about earlier in Scott's episode, that I did see them in concert. Um you know, I mentioned, you know, about, you know, being there for the night they recorded the video. It 
I went with a group of, of buddies of mine that were in my dorm. And I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a very tall man. And so as a result, I had some friends that, that were a lot bigger than me. And so what we did, we made our way all the way to the front row because at Wichita, they had a, a pit area without any seats. And, and my buddies, we made it kind of like, like an offensive line with a running back going be, behind. So my, my taller friends all kind of like blocked and got me through. And we just worked our way. Uh, like we had the system and we'd like knock, they, they'd like uh, barricade one person and then I'd slip behind and then someone else would step and barricade and then I'd slip behind. And it was just a way to, you know, get let me like slip through the cracks and I'd, I'd make the move to the next way, uh, step forward. We made our way all the way to the stage next to the speaker, to the right side, right by Matthias Yab's uh, amplifier. Of course, back then, no one's wearing ear protection. <laughs> I think my ears rang for two, three weeks. I'm sure they and, did. And I was afraid I had some permanent hearing damage because uh, it, it, you know, it, it was loud. Yeah. But, you know, what an experience to be so close to the stage and up front and, you know, you know, it, 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 they put on a great show where they were as professional and, and sounded like their albums as, as you could even imagine. So anyways, that's uh, number six, the Scorpions. And now we're going to go to my number five band. It's a little old band out of Pennsylvania. Three young lads from Mechanicsburg jump in a van, head out to California. And C.C. DeVille. Well, C.C.'s not in the van. It's a, it's a gentleman by the name of Matt Smith. Right. Um... Matt initially goes with, with Brett and Ricky and Bobby, the band formerly known as Paris. That, of course, is Poison. I won't forget you of the Look at the Cat Dragon album. Another shout out to my old high school buddy, Steve Kratz. This was a favorite, favorite song of his. I remember going to the beach at Ocean City, New Jersey. And listening to him play it, and then rewind it and play it again, and 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 we'd start screaming at him. We just stop playing this song, and he just would not. He loved this. This is one of his favorites. So let, let let it play here. And when I was trying to come up with the poison song to play, because poison was going to be on the list. I mean, they have to be on the list. I was. So many hits, you know, off of this album. I mean, Scott, you know, decided not to go with the top hit. You know, he went with Look What the Cat Dragged In. And I, I said, okay, we're going to do Talk Dirty to Me. I considered it. I want action, sure. You know, of course, then they had, you know, all the other hits of the subsequent albums. But as I went through and I played them, this one just made me happy. It, it just took me right back to, to my senior year of high school. Sure. Yeah. It does. It, it brings back good times. Yeah. And I think. I think it was, it might have been one of the guys from Poison, uh, maybe Bobby, was, you know, in an interview, he said, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be Dylan, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to be the most prolific songwriter, you know, they were just, they wanted, he wanted to be a rock star, Sure. and he wanted to go out and have fun, and I think Poison's music reflects that, you know, Every Rose Has Its Thorn is always commented on how it's so personal to Brett because it's probably the most painful song he's ever written. But for the most part, uh, Poison's early stuff is pretty much party rock. Listen to CC on that guitar solo right there. It's good stuff. 
all you poison haters out there. And Sean's right. I mean, Poison was one of the better concerts I've ever seen. Yeah, they didn't try to be more than what they were. Right. And it was a good time. We went that night to have fun and, and get our money's worth. And they, we had fun and we got our money's worth. Now, unfortunately, the usher that was in charge of our section at the Spectrum wasn't having quite the fun that we were. And I'll just share a quick story. Yeah. that um, There was this lady usher at the Spectrum. And... Evidently, you were not allowed to stand up against the railing <laughs> because where our seats were about 10 feet away from where she must have yelled at, I don't know how many people for standing against the railing. And at one point, she turns around, rolls her eyes, and puts her left hand up to her <laughs> her forehead as if to go, I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> See, we actually let that whole song roll. That's right. That's because it's a good one. It's a classic. It's one that doesn't get played a whole lot anymore and that's unfortunate i wish they would put it back in their live set again so one of these days um we you know that's another band we're gonna have to get here so when, when the guys come home um you know I've, I've seen ricky post videos uh like when they were out on their last tour he swung by his old childhood home you know ricky who went to camp hill and uh so yeah we'll have to get him in here and you know maybe talk him into putting that back in the set list so Number five, Poison. That's going to take us right to number four. It's a band that did not make my brother's list at all. Probably because you weren't sure if it fit into the genre. Yeah, because this album to me is like the antithesis of heavy metal. This, this was like the, the, the protest, the shout out, the, I'm going to, you guys are heavy metal, you're all about makeup and glam and this was anything but well this is guns and roses with mr brownstone but you know this is kind of the, what was happening at that time you know we talk about the sunset strip but nobody was bigger on the sunset strip than guns and roses and they definitely when they came out with that first video for welcome to the jungle Axel's kind of glammed up so which he hated which he hated yeah so i mean but i think oftentimes people confuse the look with the music I mean, this is definitely, this has that sleazy kind of L.A. Uh, gutter feel to it. And just listen to the, the prowling sound in his voice in this song. It's, you know, Axel's known for having that high screech. And in, in Mr. Brownstone, you don't hear it until the very, very end of the song, where he's kind of like losing his mind. And I think the shaping of the, of the lyrics into the ending of the song, because this is about Mr. Brownstone being heroin, um which I think is the best song on the album. I'm glad you picked this yeah. one. But, uh, you know, you kind of you hear him losing his senses as the song goes on and on. And I, I think it's a great capture of, of um, you know, the essence of the song itself. But you have, what, what a great band. I mean, Slash, Duff, Izzy Stradlin, my personal favorite member of Guns N' Roses. And, of course, Steven Adler was, was just incredible. I think, to me, Steven Adler is my favorite member of the original Guns N' Roses because... His drum playing represented so much of that sound. Because obviously when they go into the 90s and Adler gets the boot and Matt comes in as the drummer, the sound changes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, it doesn't have that kind of like loose swing to it like, like this did. But they, they were extremely influential in that the sound on the Sunset Strip changed. It did. After they came out. It, it, it became a little less glam, 
both in sound and appearance. So prior to this, in 1986, you see Poison. Poison's coming out, full-on glam, full-on makeup. They start to tone it down after Appetite for Destruction and Guns N' Roses, and you start to see the little more of a street look for all the musicians. Well, this was the first time in my, in my memory that you saw... Uh, the sleeve tattoos on guys. Yeah, I mean, guys, different bands, different acts. They had, they had, you know, the occasional tattoo here and there. Uh, Guns and Roses was really the first main mainstream act to. You're like, wow, man, these guys are really tatted up. And then the next thing you know, Motley Crue now, now Nikki Six and Tom and Tommy Lee. They now they've got sleeve tattoos as well. It's just, I think they were so influential not only to that area being la but nationally to uh to the whole music scene right so i definitely include them in that sunset strip scene uh there's probably very few people that would say that they were hair band that's why i don't like the title hair band because i i think it's what was metal it was what was rock at the time that was super popular and nobody was bigger than my number four band guns and roses all right, so then number three, and you know, obviously we're gonna Scott and I are gonna have a lot of the same bands here. Uh, you know, number three is a band that's got to be on this list. You know, quite frankly, you get into my top five, you can probably switch the bands around and and make an argument for any of them. But this is Molly Crow off the Shout at the Devil album, and this is Too Young to Fall in Love. When Molly Crow came out, I I I liked them at first. But it was this song that kind of got me into them. I, I really like this song. You know, for me, the, the whole visual of Motley Crue, me being three years younger than you, I heard this this song I heard before I actually saw them. Okay. And I'm glad I did. Because you liked the song, but didn't like I the visual? I liked the song, but did not like the look of the band at yeah. the time. I really kind of avoided... Motley Crue until the the Theater of Pain album, and that was when I started to, to listen. You know, not necessarily look at how they looked as a band. I said, "All right, these guys are good, but this is a good song." And turns out it was it was a pretty darn good debut album. Not even their biggest of the decade, uh, but some of their best work. Now it, it was the it was the the major label debut. I mean, they right. they, they had you know releases before that but this is the one that you know put them out there for everyone this is the album that got them part of the the us festival uh you know they they got big pretty fast well they had they had the benefit you know you talk about the you know the your predecessors kicking down the doors and how van halen came before motley crew um and van halen signed this awful record deal to start making records and Molly Cruz certainly didn't fall into that category. And I think that was in part because of the Van Halen learning experience for all these LA bands that you didn't, you know, you didn't necessarily have to be able to sign any deal because you could still sign the wrong deal and, and lose money and be in debt. There's actually a bidding war for Motley Crue before they signed their first record deal because they were already very successful in, in LA I saw an interview where they talked about how um, they rented out the forum in Los Angeles and sold the tickets themselves, and they sold out the show. So this was a band that knew how to – they could make their own – they could generate their own money without the necessity 
of having a record label. They were already pretty successful in L.A. by the time they, they got their first album deal. And also, this kind of speaks to Nikki Six, who was the visionary of the band. I mean, it, it's his band. I mean, they. I hear today that as they have reformed, they have this, this working agreement with one another. You know, we talked about, you know, some bands may might not necessarily be the best of friends, but they can work together. They understand this is good business. And I think if I understand correctly, everybody gets a vote, you know, so the four of them vote. If there's any tie, Nikki gets the deciding vote. Okay. So, so any decision, ultimately, you know, if you know, Nikki gets to make the call, the final call. So, you know, that's, but he, he has the money invested in it. He's, he's, it's it's his baby and he's really the creative driving force to the music sure uh, as he always had been yeah i know there the it was uh, at its peak they it was collaborative but it was nikki's songs that they were uh working with and and but he was giving the music and the structure to pretty much everything that they were putting out at, at just about throughout the whole motley crew uh career and one of the things i always liked about nikki is that he's a smart guy you know he's he always you know he had his demons he was super self-destructive for a, a long time but even then back in the day when you would hear him interviewed you're like that that's a smart guy very smart very um you know he seems like one of those guys that needs to keep going like needs to keep creating stuff sure i can't see him like sitting around watching tv and just right. and just bumming like, i think that's probably where his demons sort of take over but uh, in terms of a creative person he's a creative force with with the the stuff that he was putting out there i, I play kickstart my heart and that was him writing a song about coming back to life and you know because he clinically died mm-hmm. after a heroin overdose and was brought back to life not through an adrenaline shot but two adrenaline shots by a paramedic who happened to recognize him and happened to be a Motley Crue fan. That's a pretty cool story. There you go. It pays to uh, to, to have your fans around and be popular. So, uh, number three, Motley Crue. You know, once again, you, you could argue and quibble and maybe say they should have been higher, they should have been lower, but, uh, you know, they still are one of the, uh, the benchmarks when it comes to what was happening in that scene. Now, I'm going to go to number two, which... It's close to what my brother had. Uh, we're, we're off by one spot. Um, and then, of course, I'm going to have the Mighty Van Halen. And the I debated long and hard, go number one with Van Halen. They they were probably at the beginning of the, of the decade, um, more influential than they were at the end. Although I think, you know, they probably were selling more albums. But as far as that hard rock sound, as Scott said, it started to veer off in a little bit direct, different direction when Dave left the band and Sammy came in. But if you go back to 1981, beginning of the decade, when Scott said, what would his walk-up music be if he had to go and bat at the bottom of the ninth in the World Series? This is what my walk-up music would be. No, I'm glad you did pick this song because this was almost my first choice. I was afraid it was going to be your first choice. Um, one of my I, I played Panama because of 
it was kind of like the the peak of the Van Halen, David Lee Roth era, in my opinion. But if I had to pick one Van Halen song that I wanted to hear multiple times, this is probably the one I'm going to. Now listen to the song. Obviously, in Eddie's guitar. Yep. We hear Alex in the background just pounding away. Dave has got smart lyrics. And you got Mike with the high harmony. And Eddie's singing back there, too. Yeah. Those three guys were underappreciated as far as their harmonies. Because you had you had Dave with, with his growl. Eddie was a pretty good harmonizer. And then Michael Anthony could just take it a whole octave up. Yeah. And they were they were really good when they were when they were uh, doing choruses. I, I always thought they were a really good, especially for a hard rock band. And I think that's part of the reason why, as we listen to this song here, this is the blueprint for what becomes the hair band. We have the the over the top talented guitar player, which we're listening to right now with with Eddie. You know, the the finger tapping, which Eddie not the originator but he's the perfecter right absolutely you have the the, the front man you know the flamboyant front man in, in David Lee Roth but it's just a tight song I mean it's but it's poppy it's something that you're gonna have a smile on your face and of course you know you have the Ted Templeman cameo the producer Ted Templeman coming up here this was uh, totally hamming it up between Dave because Dave was doing this for fun and then Ted comes in to yell at him, and they kept it in the album. Come on, Dave, give me a break. Hey, 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 one break, coming up. Oh, yeah. And that's the magic of Van Halen. It's the magic of Van Halen. And so every other band that we talked about, I think they're following the Van Halen blueprint. Oh, I agree, 100%. Even if you go down to Kiss, who was reinventing themselves... During this period, they really borrow heavily from Van Halen, especially the look. Paul Stanley is trying his best to look like David Lee Roth out there. Yeah, it was. It's it's funny how the trendsetters aren't trying to be somebody else, and Van Halen was certainly that. They were just so unique, and then everybody tried to follow them. So that's that's when you know you're good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, it's Mighty Van Halen. Now, that's number two. But before I get to number one, I'm going to do a couple of my, my honorable mentions. And I am going to play some songs okay. for them. Okay, so my first honorable mention is a band that actually made Scott's list. It's kind of interesting that it w- this band was not on my list because I've always been such a huge fan of the band Kicks. I, I would have thought you are a bigger fan of than I am. Oh, I am. It, <laughs> but I, I, part of the reason why I didn't was I wanted to be realistic to how popular these bands were. All right, Understood. so so Kicks is a, is better to me than some of the bands that I said were on the list. They're all good, but for me, as far as musicians, as far as the songwriting, and, and, and just the the on stage performance, you know, Kicks should have been, and you hear it all the time, but they should have been bigger than what they were. And they they just didn't catch a break. They you know we, you talk about Poison, the great poison out of out of uh, central pennsylvania mm-hmm. and i'm not going to disrespect them because you have to compare kicks and poison because they're, they're similar because they came up kind of around you know well kicks was before poison but same area of the country why does one band which 
everybody says they're just such great musicians and, and you know, Steve Whiteman's got a great voice. Why does one band hit it huge in Poison and the other one doesn't? Well, to me, is it because of marketing? Is it because of management? And you'll hear the guys in Kick say that, that the record company did not know what to do with them. You know, what okay. were they? Were they ACDC? Were they Cheap Trick? Were they Def Leppard? Are they a heavy metal band? Are they a hard rock band? Are they a new wave band? When when they came out with when they came out with the album with uh, Cool Kids, mm-hmm. you can hear new wave music. Yeah, it's it doesn't have that hard of an edge to it with with quite a few of their songs. So you have the first album, which is just called Kicks, mm-hmm. which is very much an ACDC, maybe a little cheap trickish. Number the second one, which is called Cool Kids has a new wave sound to it. You know, Scott talked uh, about Local Emotion, which is a straight-up pop song with, yeah. with the saxophone. Then they they come out of that album, and then they come out with this next album, which Scott mentioned. The album's called Midnight Dynamite. The song is called Midnight Dynamite. And he didn't think that it was as good as Blow My Fuse. See, I... I think this is better. I, I think this is just a wonderful album. Yeah, and what I read on Kicks is that they were kind of the victim of the of the record company because they didn't have a defining sound to them, and that actually worked against them at a time when they should have, you know, where the record company tried to experiment with their sound and Cool Kids probably set them back a few years had they had they come out with an album similar to this in 1982 1983 then they would have had that blow my fuse type album success when midnight dynamite comes out it was almost like they fell an album behind everybody else that was around around the same time yeah i heard steve whiteman say that this was kind of the album they wanted to do when they did cool kids and they knew they had it in them and the record company said no. They wanted to push them towards that pop sound. And when you're young, why, why wouldn't you listen to them? They, they, you know, they know what they're doing, right? They're the record company. They said, while they're making, they, fin- they basically have Cool Kids finished, and someone handed them a copy of Pyromania. And they were like, oh no, this is the future, and this is the sound that we probably were heading towards. Right. And they allowed the record company to take them in a in a direction that maybe the year before was popular, but when they finally hit, it didn't really work, except locally. And, and so here's the thing, Scott. Well, the record company didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know how to market them, but they kind of left them alone in the studio other than Cool Kids. So they make really good albums. It, Midnight Dynamite, another one. It, it's made by Bo Hill, same mm-hmm. guy that makes all the route albums, Invasion of Your Privacy, right at the same time. You know, this comes out in 1985, and it has a just a classic sound that a lot of other bands are going to copy. And they were still so good as a live band. And I think there were so many, um, so many fans in our area, like I said, being uh, Southern Pennsylvania, Northern Maryland, Delaware, that were rooting for this team to, to or this, uh, you know, this band to succeed, that, uh, you know, they were ready to. They were ready to buy, and, and I remember you having these albums 
before they were considered a quote unquote national group. Oh yeah. So Oh yeah, they were so big locally, for those of you who are not from the area and, and just like they're like, why do they talk about the Hooters all the time? Well, Kicks falls in this category as well. I think so. Where you would wait in line. I remember going to the record store. Yeah, that's right. We went to the record store back then. <laughs> and I would find out the release date. So the the album that comes out after after Midnight Dynamite's Blow My Fuse, biggest album they have, produced by Tom Worman, same producer, produces the early Motley Crue albums. Uh, Don't Close Your Eyes, you know, big song, you know, big ballad. Record company didn't even want to release it initially and they kind of got talked into it by of all people uh great white's manager went and talked to Atlantic records and said you you know you're sitting on a song you need to release this they come out with um a hot wire which is the the follow-up album which is really good mm-hmm. an album that i bet no one has heard or very few people have heard that was the album that they were promoting when we saw them at the york fair at the york fair yeah yeah and uh no i mean you're right great songs should it should have been a continuation, but unfortunately, their timing was just so bad yeah. for a ten-year period that they were they were so close. And, and like you said, they're they're probably they were probably the best heavy metal band that that nationally you didn't hear about. And there's a reason why they have such a rabid following in this area. They still come and play this area. They play small little clubs, but the fact is, if they're going to play, that they're going to sell that little club out. Yeah, and, and so you know. A band that's, you know, I, I think they deserve a lot more respect. But, you know, hey, that's that's just how it goes. And, you know, we talk about Poison. From what I understand, when Poison came out with Look What the Cat Dragged In in 86, it was perfect timing. There was like a perfect storm where Enigma, the record label, had nothing to, produ- to, to promote at the time. It just, there was this law in between. And so I was like, hey, all right, let's get behind this. They, they initially... You know, Poison, they released the video Cry Tough, a song I almost played that I didn't think enough people would really like or appreciate because it wasn't a hit. It, you know, they were supposed to basically make this album, which is kind of a glorified demo. Yeah. If you actually listen to the album, they had to go back and remaster it years later because the sound quality is so poor. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a, when, when you're, when you have the sound engineers, it's, this could have been recorded in somebody's basement. It, it, the sound quality is not good. So here's a little story. So, so Michael Wagner, well-known producer later on, you know, he does Skid Row, he does White Lion, and he was brought in to mix this. And I guess it was so bad when he came in, he was given the option, as a lot of people are, do you want a percentage or do you want to get paid? So... He was told by the like the the guy who was working on the album, "Hey, this thing is so bad, you should take a check." So he ended up taking I don't know four thousand dollars, five thousand, whatever the number is. Right. It wasn't a lot. You know, this goes on to be one of the biggest hits of all time. I mean, it's a huge, oh, yeah. it's a huge album. Yeah, it, it sells up. It cost him millions, copies, and yeah. he got like five thousand dollars for it. You yeah. know, that sort of thing. So nobody expected this, and it compare that to Kicks. You know. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, but, you know, still a great band, still great albums out there. Check them out. So the next band that I have on my honorable mention list, a little bit different than the other bands that I kind of talked about. This is The Cult, and the song is Love Removal Machine. And this is when 
Ian Asbury, the lead singer, Billy Duffy. They're, ba- they're basically the cult. There's two members. They come over and they work with Rick Rubin. Okay. And Rick Rubin makes their sound very stripped down, very rock and roll, very what was happening at the time, as we keep referring to the Sunset Strip, just kind of that sound that was happening coming out of California in like 87-ish. But another very distinctive voice, a very yeah. distinctive sound. Yeah, I mean, as soon as you hear the song kick in, you know right away who the band is. And it's mm-hmm. you know. And much like a lot of other quote-unquote hair band metal music of that era, it was kind of danceable in a way. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, they were trying to they were trying to market themselves towards having stuff that you could play at a party. I mean, you, you didn't want to you hit it, play a heavy metal song and everybody walks off the dance floor. Um, yeah, I mean, this has a swing to it. You, you, you could definitely you could find yourself moving around to it. And, Absolutely. And this is where I think the music of this era changes things a little bit. Where coming out of the seventies, metal music was for guys. You know, it was it was darker. It it was. I, I heard someone describe the difference between rock music and metal music. Uh, metal music is from the waist up, and rock is from the waist down. You know, so you're kind of like head banging, moving your head up and down, rhythmic, in a rhythmic fashion, to old school metal, where what we're now getting is kind of like shaking your hips a little bit, and and girls are gonna be attracted to this, and they're gonna come out to the shows. You you, you mentioned. The swing to the song, you you can almost see the connection there, the similarity between a song like this and a Mr. Brownstone with mm-hmm. Guns and Roses. Very very similar. Yeah. And that's kind of once again 1987 ish. That's when Appetite's coming out, and that's when this is coming out. Right. No, this this good choice. I haven't thought about the Cult in a long time. Yeah, a, a band that I I still come back to from time to time. All right. So another. Now, here's a band that Scott mentioned, and I really thought it was going to be your list. But based on the one album rule that you had, I can see why it did not make it. But this is White Line and Wait. So, yeah, I, I was just thinking about this song a couple of days ago. And still still holds up. It's, it's I, I, still, I don't get tired of it. It still holds up over all these years. You know, we, we have, as we've talked about, Mike Tramp on lead vocals, the, the great Vito Brada uh, on guitar, uh, James Lomenzo, a bass player that, you know, has just worked time and time and time again with John Cafferty. Now he's back in Megadeth again. And uh, Greg D'Angelo, a, a highly respected drummer. Just a, an excellent band and another East Coast band. Yeah, New York City. And... With White Lion, they're patterning themselves after selves after Van Halen. You think? Well, you know, you have you have the, the the flashy guitar player. You know, Vito. He's got you know he's got the tapping. He's you know he's that guitar hero. Mike Tramp, that the the blonde, good-looking lead singer, kind of prowling around the stage, a little David Lee Rothish. See, I, I thought he was definitely going for Bon Jovi. Well, you know, you could say that. Yeah, all right, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, I thought I thought he was definitely trying to copy John Bon Jovi. Well, and you know, that that's the thing. Both were kind of happening at the time. Right. So it, it was a similar thing where, you know, all right, so is it Johnny Ritchie or is it 
Eddie and Dave, you know, it, it, similar, uh, you know, things are going on. Yeah. But you're going to let it go to the guitar solo. I'm going to let you? it go because yeah. this, this is still, as I think Eddie Van Halen is the greatest guitarist of all time. This may be the best guitar solo ever, in my opinion. I mean, that's, this is so how highly I think of it. And this is honorable mention. <laughs> <laughs> right. One take. It wasn't even supposed to be recorded. Right. I mean, as I had said in, in a, a previous episode, he literally was playing guitar along with uh, D'Angelo while he was doing his uh, drum tracks, just so he had somebody to play with. And it was so good that Michael Wagner, the producer, said, "No, that's it. We got it." Yeah, and Vito's like, "Got what?" <laughs> like any other artist, he wanted to do like a hundred takes, and right. it's like, "No, you're not going to improve on that." And I think uh, Wagner probably was correct. That That is just, you know, one of the best uh, guitar solos ever recorded. And it's, you know, Vito doesn't do any work anymore. He, he totally got out of the music industry. He, he, he basically disappeared 30 years ago. Sure. But we're, I'm glad that we can archive things like the recordings that we do have uh, yeah. from, from him. Because, you know, that, you can, as you said, you can put that up there with anything that that Eddie Van Halen or George Lynch or any of the other uh, big names put out at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the last band uh, on my honorable mention list is another band produced by Michael Wagner. And yet another band from the East Coast. Yeah, I think there's something going on around here. The, yeah. like New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Yep. Uh, you know, if you look at it, it's bands out of L.A. and it's bands right here on the East Coast. There, there was a scene that was happening both places. Yeah, and and before I forget, this is Skid Row. For right. those of you who don't know, and their biggest hit, "I Remember You," and I've intentionally left ballads off of my list, but I love this song so much it had to make an appearance. And this, this is such a well-crafted song um, by Dave the Snake Sabo and and Rachel Bolin, the 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 two. Basically, the you know Rachel on bass and Snake on on guitar, the the two creators of Skid Row. And Dave Sabo is actually one of his best friends in real life is none other than John Bon Jovi. Right. They grew up together, and it was John Bon Jovi's parents that recommended Sebastian Bach to join Skid Row because uh, Dave was looking for a lead singer. And they actually heard Sebastian singing at a wedding that they attended and said, Hey, Dave. We heard this guy with a really nice singing voice, and it turned out to be Sebastian Bach. I thought that was a pretty cool story. And, you know, I, I recently uh, heard an interview with uh, Snake, and it was on... Uh, it, there's a YouTube channel that I highly recommend. It's called The Professor of Rock. So anyone interested in things like this, go go out and, and watch him, Adam Reader. Adam's phenomenal, uh, and it's a daily YouTube show. I watch it every day. And he had uh, Snake on, and so he, 
Snake was saying he and Rachel didn't think that this was good enough to be on the album and that everyone around them were like, are you crazy that this is so good? And, you know, John Bon Jovi listened to it. He said, this is this is you know really good. And they said, we're so young. We just didn't know. You don't know. Yeah. And it, it turned out to be really an all timer. Oh, absolutely. This, you know, Skid Row had some success with um, song releases before this. I think this was their third song off the album. So the first one was Youth Gone Wild. Right. And then it was 18 in Life. Yeah. Then they came out with the song that did not really be, it wasn't really released as a single. It was released as a video, Piece of Me. I remember that. And um, then they came out with this. So the whole idea was they kind of knew from working with the record company, this was going to be the closeout of the album. Okay. So it was just kind of a placeholder, get people ready and ramped up for this song. And I remember locally, some of the radio stations would play the song, but not say who the artist was. And I think it's because it was such a dramatic change from Youth Gone Wild and 18 in Life, which are you know kind of harder, much, much more rocking. And then this is just a over-the-top pretty ballad. Absolutely, and there are um, bands out there in, you know, I think 90s heavy metal, you could, you could kind of put extreme into that, that category. Uh, unfortunately for them, they, they tried to release a couple of singles off of the album Pornography mm-hmm. before More Than Words, but unfortunately they didn't hit, have any traction. Well, then More Than Words comes out and goes to number one. Now all of a sudden they're not thought of as necessarily the hard rock band that they were for deck, you know, for the better part of the, of the eighties when they were coming up through the ranks. Um, so it, a song like that can work against you. And, and I credit Skid Row for kind of waiting because it probably was their best song off the album, but yet it was, it was one of the later releases of the album because I don't think they wanted to get typecast as, you know, a, a band that, plays ballads so part of the reason why they are an honorable mention is much like scott uh, to me this is the one album that fits i i know they became more popular for a lot of people they became like a headliner with their next album slave to the grind right i didn't care for it that much it, it it I I like the radio friendly type of music. I I like things that are a little little poppier. I, I like things that are melodic. Well, I'm I'm not going to say that that there aren't moments on that album that are good. It's just not me. It's not my style. But I this is this is definitely down my my alley. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I I listen a lot to Sirius XM and Skid Row is played prominently on uh, Hair Nation Channel Thirty Nine. Uh, Slave to the Grind gets more play now than than the uh, than the first album. Uh, when 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 you're talking about uh, songs like Rattlesnake Shake and mm-hmm. they're good. I mean they're good songs. I like but, uh, Big Guns. I mean yeah. I, I was always surprised they didn't release that one as a single. It's the first song off the album. I almost played that one because okay. I like it so much. And uh, but definitely. Uh, you know, a bigger sounding album, uh, you know, is much more of the times it, it you know, they, they make that album, they, their self-titled debut album, and then they immediately go on the road and they open for Bon Jovi right. for the New Jersey tour. And it's, it's this huge uh, phenomenon uh, for them where they, you know, and it takes them to like another level. Well, weren't they part of that um, 
That the Moscow the, Peace the, Festival. Yeah, went to yeah. went to uh, the Soviet Union. Yep, yeah. it was the Moscow Peace Festival where the um, Doc McGee, who was the manager of at the time of of Bon Jovi, the manager of the time of Motley Crue, he was managing Skid Row at the time. He had some uh, issue where um, he had some drug charges against him, and the only way he could he had like some community service, and his whole idea or the whole way he got out of uh, probably going to jail, I'm assuming, but he organized and put together this this Moscow Peace Festival, which ostensibly was to be uh, against substance abuse. Well, it was called the Make a Difference Tour. Yeah, but I guess everyone got loaded on the plane over. And Snake said it, on the plane they called it the Make a Different Drink Tour. Correct, correct. Yeah. So, But yes, yeah, so they were part of that, and I think they opened the show. At the, they you know, did, yeah. So, you know, we, we go back, and that's a good lead-in, Scott, actually. So at the Moscow Peace Festival, you have uh, Skid Row. I think they're the opening act. I think the band, the Russian band Gorky Park, might have come on after them. Then you go to Cinderella. Right. Or was it Ozzy? Maybe, I think it was Cinderella, then it was then it was Ozzy. Then Motley Crue? I believe so, yeah. And then Scorpions. Well, I thought Bon Jovi closed the show. Bon Jovi closed it out. It was yeah. the Scorpions, and then it's Bon Jovi. And it's interesting that that's the lead-in, because yeah. guess what my number one band is? It's the same band that was the headliner at the Moscow Peace Festival. And because Scott played the Bon Jovi song I was going to play, this was the backup song that I had ready to go, just in case, because I thought with the Spaceballs connection, <laughs> you might go down that road, and you did. This is off the New Jersey album. So it is. This is... Bad Medicine. And what a great jump start to a follow-up album. This went to number one. It did go to number one. Yeah. Great video. Mm-hmm. The late Sam Kinison is in the video. And and like I said before, uh, when, I, when I had said about John's ambition to go from being a supporting act to a headlining act, this album... You can't say enough about a, a, a band that works themselves to be the number one band in the world. Sure. And then maintains it with their next album. So It's so hard to do, and they're one of the few bands in basically in music, pop music history, to be able to do that. To go from a number one album to another number one album, that's every bit as good as the, the one before. Right. You know, and, and the fact that you, you brought up the Moscow Peace Festival and, uh, you know, most of the bands that played that day are on our list. Right. And even then, amongst all these heavy hitters, and, you know, Motley Crue had not come out with Dr. Feelgood. Right? So that's their biggest album. But Girls, Girls, Girls had come out, which was huge at the time. They still are before Bon Jovi on the bill. Scorpions, you know, been around since the 70s. They still are before Bon Jovi at that time. Bon Jovi closes the show because while we slippery when wet, you know, they, they you know, we talked about other times them being the biggest band of the world and they're selling out arena after arena after arena. They go on the New Jersey tour, they're selling out stadium after stadium after stadium. Yeah, they had clearly taken yet another step and... How many how many musical acts or bands at that time? Because stadium tours have increasingly become more popular throughout history. You know, more recently, 
How many bands do you think you could name off the top of your head that would play stadiums? Bruce Springsteen wasn't even playing stadiums at that point. He was still doing uh, arenas. Maybe the Stones, U2, Queen. Uh, it's a pretty short list. And if you are doing stadiums, you're probably packaging a bunch of bands together. So I talked about how in the summer of 2022, uh, you know, Motley Crue and Def Leppard and Poison and Joan Jack, they go and they do a stadium tour. But Bon Jovi's going out doing it by themselves. I mean, they would take an opening act with right. them, but it's not like the opening act was a huge draw. Yes, they were popular, uh, you know, for Cinderella and then later on with Skid Row. But I think Skid Row and Cinderella became popular because they were on the tour and, and not, you know, vice versa. You know, anybody you know, with the magic of, of YouTube, you can go back and, and watch any music video you can think of, which is great. Go back to the uh, Guns N' Roses um, YouTube for uh, Paradise City. All right. <clears throat> At the time, they were op the opening act for Aerosmith. Right. Now, when they are uh, rehearsing and it shows the clip of them performing in concert, look at Giant Stadium when they're performing and look how empty it is. And that's a stadium tour. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, now, granted, that was early in you know Guns N' Roses, um, people knowing who Guns N' Roses right. were. But also, it also speaks volumes when you have a band like a Bon Jovi. I guarantee you, when they when they closed out Giant Stadium the following year, when they were doing the New Jersey tour, and they showed their video clip of Giant Stadium, there wasn't a seat in the house that was that could be taken. Right. I mean, you're talking a jam packed stadium. So, to be a stadium act was was really accomplishing. You know, it was like the pinnacle of somebody's career, and I think. John even talked about that, Clo you know, closing out the tour at Giant Stadium was like, at that point in his career, that was like the pinnacle of his career. It's kind of interesting that you and I had a similar take on our list, where if, if you go back and you look at lists that are, you know, put together by, by others out there, you don't see Van Halen and Bon Jovi listed. I mean, it, it's... Sure, there's Motley Crue, there's Poison. You don't see Guns N' Roses. I mean, that's not only there. Uh, you'll, you'll see Cinderella, you'll see Doc and Warrant. But the bands that you and I have right at the top, I, I think sometimes it gets forgotten. I know John in particular would like it to be forgotten because right. he's changed his image. Sure. You know, he's become much more of a Bruce Springsteen. It's, it's more, uh, you know, Americana type of, of a sound. And, and he, as you said, he really can't hit those notes anymore like, that he did back during Slippery When Wet and during the New Jersey tours. You know, so, I mean, that changes things. But even still, you know, to his credit, you know, he was very smart in understanding don't get pigeonholed and, and evolve as your career goes on. You can't argue with the success that he's had because he has stayed at such a high level where most of the other bands that we've talked about, they had their moment and then they kind of, they kind of went away. If they do play... It's, it's smaller venues right now. Sure. But, yeah. you know, John has continued to be super successful. You know, Van Halen, you know, continued to be super successful up until, you know, Eddie's passing away as well. But for me, both of them, they, they're like the bookends to the decade of the 80s and when that metal kind of ruled the, the airways, when it was the most popular style of music. You know, Van Halen brought it in and Bon Jovi, Jovi kind of polished it even more. 
and made it even more user-friendly for the average person and I think took it to, to its highest level. And as you close out the decade in the 80s, which speaks so much about uh, for us Gen Xers, you could probably go to the top 10 or the top 20 of the Billboard uh, Hot 100 at that point, and you would have these bands on there like Skid Row, like Bon Jovi, but then you would also have a Janet Jackson, a Bobby Brown. Yeah, there was a lot of diversity in, in the in the music at that particular time in the music scene. There were uh, there was very little. You even have Springsteen, Mellencamp. They were putting out music, hit music in the late '80s as well. So there was a lot coming out at that particular point. I think it was kind of this musical explosion. We're covering just one aspect of the charts, and but I think we we need to give it its due. Because particularly from the MTV side, how important and visual it was to uh, to viewers and to music fans. And it, it took a style of music that was very album-oriented, very rock radio-oriented, and it went totally mainstream. It, it, it went into the top 20. You know, it th- these were, I think most of the bands that we would have mentioned on our list, they, they had, if not top 10 hits, they were really close to the top 10. And sure. Some of them went to number one. Yeah, I had mentioned the band Extreme. Yeah, a, a band that I really liked. A couple other band names that we didn't really talk about. Um, Firehouse, Mr. Big. They were more 90s. They had some hit songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I particularly liked Mr. Big. I thought they were pretty cool. So I like Firehouse a little bit You better. like Firehouse, yeah. yeah. Damn Yankees. I, I, I like I, Damn Yankees. Yeah. That was a super group that was put together with... Um, you know, Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw and Ted Nugent, mm-hmm. uh, really good band. And they only released two albums. And supposedly there's there's a there's a, there's a rumor out there that there was a third album that was created but never released. So I, I recently listened to an interview with the drummer, uh, Michael Candeloni, you know, yeah. who has been the long-time drummer for Leonard Skidder. So he's... He was brand new on the scene back then. You know, he, he said that he was kind of the baby of the group, and they were so successful that the guys told him, this isn't normal. Don't get used to this, that your first time out of the gate, you're this successful. And he said that they never broke up as a group. He said they just got so busy with, with Night Ranger, with Sticks, with Ted Nugent, and he said with Ted Nugent's hunting schedule. Hmm. It, it was impossible to get together. He said, but they would get together and record. Right. He said, there's 30 unreleased songs that they have recorded. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe that and that they actually packaged an album that just never got released and they put it on a shelf. So maybe someday, maybe someday. Uh, and I could see it possibly happening as, as music, you know, as time goes on, it's amazing how nostalgia comes into play mm-hmm. where we, what we're doing here, Scott, right now with, with our little podcast where we're all about the nostalgia and reminiscing about the good times Kind of like we talked about disco. There was a time where you were embarrassed to associate yourself with disco, and then suddenly it wasn't a bad thing. That's happening right now with what was disparagingly called hairband music for most of the 90s into the 2000s. There's a lot of love for it right now. Yeah, yeah, there is, because you you go back and, you know, you talked about guitarist after guitarist after guitarist. You're like, this guy was a great session player. This guy was... Um, there's a lot of musicianship. There's a lot of talented music um, in hairband music, and I think or, or heavy metal music. It's 
people can appreciate it for what it is, which is just good playing. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily have to typecast it. Just sit back and appreciate the song for what it is. Uh, yeah, heavy metal, is it over the top? Sure, it's over the top. But you know what? There's moments, like like we said, if you are if you want to be in a, in a walk-up song to a bass, you, do you want to, you know, do you want to Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians? You know what I'm saying? You want something that's going to get you pumped up. Yeah. Heavy metal music, that's what it was geared towards. It was pumping people up, making people feel good about themselves it wasn't it wasn't angry it wasn't uh well i mean a little bit of it was but for the most part it was adrenaline type music and um it has its it has its true place in history it was feel-good music it it was party music it was music that was meant to provide good memories and that's what i have that's why i talked about like with poison i won't forget you the moment i hear the beginning of that song i'm transported back to to hanging out with my friends in in somebody's car i'm at ocean city yelling yeah. at steve kratz to stop playing it over and over again and and another reason why i you know bon jovi was number 1 on my list is because i can't hear a bon jovi song without thinking of the beach you know we we talked about in another episode where where we live at on the East Coast, we go to the beach or down to the beach or or the shore, down to the shore. Down the shore. Yeah. Yeah. It, so it, it's part of your upbringing. And it's it's a soundtrack for at least the teenage years, at least for me, going to hang out with my friends at the beach. And, you know, that you picked Van uh, uh, Bon Jovi as your number one makes sense because Bon Jovi was really one of the first heavy metal bands to draw interest from male and female oh, yeah. uh, listeners. Yeah. And I think anybody listening to this podcast will probably agree um, that it was just as popular with guys as it was with girls. And it was okay. You know, it was one of those, one of those where guys didn't mind John being such a handsome guy. Yeah. Um, because when it came down to it, the band was good. Yeah. And so they could live with it. Well, when I went to my first concert in 1984, which was Judas Priest, it was probably 60, 70% male. Okay. You know, and it was, and and, and the girls that, that went, you know, they, they were, you know, there were hard rock fans that were into it. It was all good. But when you went to a Bon Jovi concert or you went to a Poison concert, it was more, it was probably, it was reversed. I mean, it was probably. 60 70 percent uh female and they got decked out you know they they they, that hair was teased to the sky well my wife amy is a huge bon jovi fan Uh, she she likes heavy metal music as much as we do and i think a lot of it has to do with the later stuff that came you know what started out as judas priest evolved into the bon jovis of the world um but i went to concerts with her uh and she was just as much into the hard rock as what as what we were. And that was I kind of liked it at the time. It, it just just the fact that it didn't really discriminate one way or the other. Sure. It 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 was it was a, a lot more of 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 an open atmosphere that I just thought it was kind of neat and I always appreciated it and it's that to me that's one of the my fondest memories of the time and going to concerts back then was you went to a concert it was like one big party and it was a feel good event. And that was the, the intention. Okay. Well, I'll just recap my top 10 list, uh, for my favorite 
heavy metal bands of all time. Number 10 was the Scorpions. Number 9, Night Ranger. Number 8 is Rat. Number 7, Def Leppard. Number 6, Cinderella. Number 5, Kicks. Number 4, Bon Jovi. Number 3, Motley Crue. Number 2 is Poison. And number 1 is the Mighty Van Halen. And I'm going to go with uh, number 12, which was uh, Kiss. Although, based on our discussion tonight, I probably would put Kicks in there after afterwards. But still, <laughs> number 12 was Kiss. 11, Warrant. Number 10 was Dokken. Number 9, out of Philadelphia, Cinderella. Number 8, White Snake. Number 7 was Rat. Number 6, those Germans, the Scorpions. Number 5, Central Pennsylvania's own Poison. Number 4, Guns N' Roses. Number 3, Motley Crue. Number two, as Scott said, the mighty Van Halen. And number one for me, out of New Jersey, John Bon Jovi and the lads Bon Jovi. All right. Um, I had a lot of fun with that. That was that was a good uh, step down. You and I were such big heavy metal fans growing up, and you continued on uh, for many, many years. You did, even after the grunge movement came on. You- I, I defiantly stood there and fought it and lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, the record industry kind of moved away from it, but... I, like I said, I think it. I think it owns a place in rock history and deserves to be there. And for many Gen X fans, it's it's deservedly so. I think a lot of Gen X fans. Um, I don't think you can't be a Gen Xer and not like all different types of music. I'd be surprised if there's somebody that that didn't find a heavy metal song that wasn't one of their favorites. Right. Right. So you may have tuned in. Uh, to this episode and thought, yeah, I wasn't really into metal. You know, maybe I'll I'll skip this episode. There was nothing there for me. I, I, I bet there was something on both of our lists that even through the honorable mentions, there was something you liked at some point. Well, hopefully we jogged some, some memories, caused you to, uh, gave you some cause to go into your computer and, and maybe pull some things up that you hadn't thought about before. And if nothing else, go back and watch um, Scorpions when Passion Rules the Game at the 319 mark and see if you can see young me there uh, at, at a concert with my college buddies. In Wichita, Kansas. Wichita, Kansas. So anyways, that's going to wrap up our um, Don't Call Them Hair Bands episode. But so now, as we always do, we turn it over to uh, to the other person. You know, this was my episode. Uh, you know, I got to pick the topic now, Scott. So what do you have lined up for next episode? Well, you know, I was, you know, as you said, I, I like to go back and, and look at how the podcast is doing and, and the viewership and, and things like that. So one of the things that, uh, Anchor and Spotify give us the opportunity to look at and see what is our most popular, like what was the one episode that has been viewed the most times by the most number of people. Okay. So as it stands right now, the episode that has been viewed, watched, or listened to the most by uh, our fans, our listeners, is the Name That Tune uh Mm-hmm. One of TV theme songs. That was one of my favorites. So I thought, well, let's, why don't we, you know, it's been a couple of months. Let's dust that off and bring it back. So we're going to do Name That Tune next week, except we're going to go into the Billboard Top 40. Okay. And just so you can't study up on it, <laughs> we're going to, I'm going to do a date to be determined later. Uh, my so. brother knows me well. <laughs> he, he knows I like to do well on tests. So, so uh, yeah, I, I, I would have studied. There, um, uh, I, I'm not going to say even what decade it's going to uh, be. For, it's not going to be 90s, so right. you don't have to worry about that. But I think, and and even if you can't remember some of the songs, I mean, 
or remember who sang it. Uh, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun because we're going to do the whole 40. And then because oh, wow. once you, because once you start getting into the top 20 and top 10 for a lot of, a lot of song lists, yeah, yeah okay. you're going to get them. You're going to get them. But it's always that 40 through 21 mm-hmm. that you kind of, you kind of hear the, the songs that were kind of cool, but they didn't necessarily hit that, that regular rotation that you hear to this day. So I'd, I'd like to do the whole top 40. And I, th- I think we'll have some fun with it. So, uh, listeners, bring your, uh, you know, bring yourself to the game, and we're just going to play name that tune. So we'll do uh, artist and and song title. See how see how we do. I uh, like that. I, I think name that tune should be a a regular a reoccurring theme that we have. So I I, I had a lot of fun with that, and I know the feedback that I got from listeners was you know it, it was probably their most that it was their favorite we want to try you know you want to try and put stuff things out there that the listeners can go along with sure and for us it's going to be something is there's obviously for sean he's not going to be able to do any research or any anything along those lines so uh it's just uh well you know like we said the music will bring back some good memories for you and so we'll uh we'll pick the year and the date and uh, tune in for our next episode. So hopefully uh, you'll you'll be with us next time. Just okay. Well. So this will be the one time I do no preparation. Well, Sean and I certainly hope that you enjoyed this episode on heavy metal music. Um, we had a lot of fun with this one. You know, anytime we do our top ten list, uh, it's always great to go pull that information and come up with uh, what we thought was some of our favorites of all time. Yeah, I, I agree. I had a lot of fun doing this one. I was actually pretty excited uh, as we were getting ready for this one just because it's a topic I really like. All right, it's Name That Tune up next week. So for Gen X Playback, I'm Scott. And I'm Sean. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon. See you.